when I was a kid, I wanted to be an anesthesiologist, but now I'm a wine educator. Hi, I'm Ben Hanani. Welcome to How Do You Do, a podcast featuring creative guests sharing the nuances of their process. Just a quick reminder to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts is the most helpful thing you can do for the podcast. My guest today is Tanisha Townsend. Tanisha has cultivated a community of wine enthusiasts through an unyielding passion for enology. As chief wine officer of lifestyle agency Girl Meets Glass, Tanisha leads wine classes and tours in Paris and virtually. Her goal is to empower individuals with an advanced knowledge of wine and spirits in order to build confidence in their tastes and make choices as a better informed consumer. She's also the host of her own awesome podcast, Wine School Dropout. Without further ado, welcome to the pod, Tanisha. Thank you. So happy to be here. Yeah, we're happy to have you. And I got to say, I was just recently listening to episodes of Wine School Dropout. And not only did I love it, you just do an amazing job of taking all these questions I had had and I wasn't sure how to articulate them. And you put them in these fun bite-sized episodes that are so fun to go through and also very well produced. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> working with Ochenta Studios and getting those produced has been fantastic. And I'm glad you enjoyed them. And I wanted to do them bite-sized, short, because sometimes people get so long-winded when it comes to wine and they go into all these different topics and things and you're like, what are you talking about? So I wanted it to be one topic, a couple of points that after they listen to the podcast, they can go to a wine shop or go to a restaurant and use what they just heard. 100%. And I think for someone like myself who's recently gotten into wine, your episode, I think it's called how to speak wine or how do you speak wine was incredibly helpful. I think it gives you the vocabulary that will really be, you know, it'll help you when you walk into a wine shop, like you said, and you're trying to talk to the person who works there and figure out what you might like there. Knowing that vocabulary goes a long way. So I think if somebody's just looking for a place to start, that episode especially is a good starting point. Thank you. That, that that was one of my favorite to do. That one and then the music TV one. Those were my favorites of the whole season. <laughs> awesome. And uh, so we, we always like to start with a current curiosity. And on my end, something that's recently sparked my interest was the Padma Lakshmi's new show on Hulu, Taste the Nation. In each episode, she goes through a different part of the United States and gets to know a food community there and it, it showed up on my radar because i'm an iranian living in los angeles where we have the largest expat community of iranians out here in southern california and she did an episode about persian food which was awesome and so i got to see her you know in westwood and in the community out here in tehrangelis as we say and i got i got super interested in in the series and there's an episode about thai food and i and all kinds of different cuisine and I just think it's it's fascinating and it's gotten me more curious about these different enclaves throughout the U.S. that that are known for such awesome food that might not have gotten the attention on a mainstream level that they deserve until recently. Now, you are maybe like the third or fourth person who has mentioned her show to me. So now I'm going to have to uh, find it. 
look it up. I can't quite get Hulu here, so we'll we'll go around. Oh, oh yeah, you're yeah. They don't they don't have Hulu abroad in in Paris, right? No, so we'll we'll figure out some ways. I won't go into that while we're being. <laughs> there are ways. Yeah, I will search it out and find it. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure there's a way to find it. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, my thing, my current curiosity, I'd have to say, is online learning. I've gone down a rabbit hole with that since you know we can't do in-person class or anything like that. But being a professor and then also hosting wine tastings, now moving those to online, it's different the way people actually learn online. So I've gone down a full rabbit hole of learning how to create online courses, how people learn online, how people are stimulated online, whether it's by sound or by video or things like that. I've gone down a full rabbit hole on that. So online learning, I taste my current curiosity. That's fascinating. That's actually a great transition to something I've been wanting to ask you is how, how has your role as both a wine professor and also somebody who's organized tastings and tours. How has that, what was that like before COVID and how have you adapted virtually? Before COVID, I'll start with the tour part. Before COVID, I would meet up with my clients. We would go to a wine bar and you know they would get the feel for the city and kind of the wine culture because they're reading the menu. I let them order. Um, and they just kind of see how people do things in Paris as far as how wine goes. That, we definitely can't do that now. One, tourists aren't here. And uh, the wine bars are back open now, but I had to pivot a bit. And so I started doing virtual tastings where I would give people like a list of wines to order, to buy, uh, have shipped to them, whatever the case may be, and then do the tasting virtually. I would have some of the wines, they would have them, and then we just go through a tasting on Zoom or Skype or whatever best worked for them. It wouldn't be, I had maps, I had tasting cards, and we go through tasting notes and things like that. And they loved it. They were able to ask all the questions they wanted to ask. We didn't have to worry about waiting to be seated. It wasn't too crowded. It wasn't too noisy. Like everything worked. We didn't have to wait to order. It worked out very well. Now for the teaching part, that one was much different because I had never done my course online before. And with COVID happening and us shutting down in March, I had to do a very quick pivot to online. So everything that I had created for in-person, I had to change all that to online fast. So I was developing the course as I taught it. So I would create one course and then you know put that out and then do another one and then have to put that out. So I didn't have it all created in advance like I usually like to do. But it did get me, give me some more freedom in the things that I can do with it. Having videos, having, uh, doing voice recordings. Sometimes it would be voice recordings over the slides. Sometimes it would just be voice recordings. And I was able to do that kind of in a podcast format by doing a voice recording, adding in sound effects, telling stories, at the beginning of each uh, class, when I would give the online lecture, when I would give the lecture, I would have the sound of a school bell and I would say classes in session, you know, just different <laughs> things like that to keep the students engaged. And we had an online discussion group. 
And that got the kids really, I'm saying kids, that got the students really engaged <laughs> in being able to discuss and answer. And I had fun just reading their thoughts and ideas in the discussion group. That's fascinating and, and kudos for adapting so well. And that class sounds super fun. I, I'm kind of envious of your students right now. It was an economics of wine course. So more so the business of wine. We talked about wine marketing, mm -hmm. wine investments, uh, tasting rooms, direct to consumer, import, export, distribution, packaging, natural wine, all of those things. It was less focused on grapes and soil and climate, but more on wine as a business because people got it and just drinking but i'm like it's a whole <laughs> entire industry yes and you're teaching this class out of paris too are these students also based in paris or are they around the world this particular semester they were around well around the united states this course is for a study abroad program in the fall i teach it to french students so i definitely have to change up the way i teach french students versus american students but this oh that that's interesting yeah it's it's way different the way they uh, learn is different and the information they want is different the yeah so that that's that's really fascinating because you're from chicago originally right yes so what are you speaking to that point what is what is different that you've noticed in the american approach toward wine the american sensibilities versus the french sensibility Americans are a lot more open to trying a lot of different things and Americans are perfectly fine admitting that, okay, I don't really know that much about wine or I don't know that much about these regions or when Americans do know about wine, they know about wine as a whole. I find that French people know French wine. And if you want to talk to them about Spanish wine or German wine or South African wine, they're like, yeah, but we have those things in France, so I don't have to go into any of that. <laughs> so so how do you go about with students who, who have that mindset? How do you go about exposing them to the many other beautiful wine regions around the world and why those are important as well? When I do tastings for my French students, I do wines that aren't French. Mm -hmm. I'll pick a region and do that. Like one semester I did tour of the Americas and I had some winemaker friends from the States, one from Oregon and one from Maryland. And I had them Skype into the class and the students love that. Another semester, the tour of the Americas was, um, uh, I did South America and I had wines from Argentina and Chile. Uh, and then this past fall, we did South Africa. And with me just adding in that piece, that's like, okay, you're in class, you have to listen. Like now I have your attention, you have to listen to what I'm saying. <laughs> that's how I get them kind of engaged and involved in it. And then I'll also refer it back to French wine. I say, these are the grapes they have here. Okay, yes, they came from France. These are how the French grapes are um, grown and things like that is different because of this, this, and this and doing it in a comparative way that makes them much more engaged in it and getting them to think about wines in other places. That's really cool. And that's an approach that I've, I've sort of adopted on, on some level as I'm trying to learn about wine myself is when I, before when I would taste a wine, I'd either just think, oh, I like this taste or I don't like this taste. But now I think, okay, where is this from? 
and what's a comparable region what's a comparable place so if i'm shopping for wine next time and they don't necessarily have that top choice of mine i can say okay i know this this region this is a neighboring region to the one i liked it'll it might be good do you think that same approach you use with your students it also works for the everyday wine consumer right Absolutely. And I was just going to say to you, that's fantastic. That is a great way to do it. When um, I tell people, like when they get stuck in a rut and always drink the same thing, like, okay, maybe try that grape from a different region or whatever region you're in say, oh, you know, I'm always drinking Riesling from Germany. Okay. Maybe get a Riesling from Australia. Try that. Or maybe just try something else from Germany. Germany has Gewürztraminer. They do Pinot Noir. They do Pinot Blanc try something else from there and maybe that's something that you will find that you also enjoy right and i've i've heard people like yourself who are knowledgeable about wine talk about how you can find comparable wines often based on the region's relation or distance from the equator right so so for example if you're taking burgundy or or bordeaux french wines what are some comparable wines that we could find in the states that might be similar to the profiles of the ones coming out of France? Ben, if it wasn't for this question, I was gonna say, you know you know enough already. You don't need me on this podcast. <laughs> just do this all yourself. <laughs> I'm just Thank gonna you. be That's quiet. <laughs> but no, about your question, when thinking about Burgundy and thinking what they have and where they are, that uh, correlates to Oregon. And so Oregon has some amazing Pinot Noirs. And so if you're really interested in doing the comparative tasting or just finding something different, try the Pinot Noir from Oregon and compare those to the ones from Burgundy in France. Bordeaux, you could relate those to Cabernet Sauvignons in California, but with a lot of Bordeaux being blends, you will find the flavor is a little different, especially since Bordeaux is a much smaller uh, the areas in Bordeaux and like the soil, the climate is much more similar to each other as opposed to California. When you think of North to South California, you have different soils, the weather is different, the amount of sunlight, rainfall, all of that is different. But I would say try a Cabernet from there and try one from California. Also, um, Chile makes a good Cabernet Sauvignon. So I would say try that as well. Mm. It's remarkable to me how much goes into being knowledgeable about wine beyond just knowing tastes. So you've mentioned soil, you've mentioned climate, and you have to be mindful of this for basically the entire world. And I know that's something that's taught throughout your education. How do you how do you go about retaining all this knowledge <laughs> about these different regions when it gets to such specific things like terroir and climate? For me... It would be hard if I was retaining this knowledge for all of the regions. I mm. chose to focus a lot on, of course, French regions because I'm here mm. and can speak in depth and thoroughly on those. I am American, so I can speak a bit about uh, American wines too, but I chose to just be more focused on kind of going in depth on the regions I was able to uh, talk about in that way and discuss. It also helps that since I'm in France, I can visit these places. Mm. Going to visit a place and picking up the rocks, seeing how the vines grow, because some of them grow up, some of them grow out like a bush, some of them grow up like a tree with one branch on the left, some of them grow with a branch on the left and the right. All of that makes a difference. 
And seeing that is much more helpful in retaining that information than just me reading it in a book. Yeah, that's a great point. The interactive experience always always goes a, a long way, goes further. Yeah, and it's also that, so yeah. many opportunities to taste wine here. In a good season, um, in the spring, it's usually a tasting like every Monday because Mondays are usually the days when restaurants and bars are closed, at least in the morning. They'll open up maybe six or seven in the evening, but there are tastings. And so you can go to those tastings and here at tastings, the winemaker, wine producer, like that person is actually the one pouring the wine. Whereas in the States, it's usually like the importer, maybe the distributor, a sales associate for a wine shop or something like that. But being able to talk directly to the winemaker and ask them questions, I mean, you get all the information from that, like literally all of it. So Totally. That's so cool. I'm wondering if I were to shadow you, for example, at one of these tastings, what are the kinds of questions I might hear you asking from the winemaker? Um, I ask, like, say if it was something that was happening now, I would ask about how was the winter season? Well, the season, the little part of time between winter and spring. Um, how was that growing season? Is every, does everything seem to be on track for harvest? Because harvest is usually about August, September. Um, I ask what kind of soil they have. Um, I usually ask how large their vineyard is, how many hectares, how many different types of grapes they grow. Are they just single varietal or do they grow four, five, six different things? Are they doing natural or organic? And then I ask, where can I find them? <laughs> those are those are all valuable questions. And I think my favorite my favorite part about the wine wine tasting process that I've observed is spitting. Can you talk a little <laughs> bit? Can you talk a little bit about spitting and why that's actually kind of like why you can't actually drink the wine, why it's important to spit? And how do you how are you still able to judge a wine without having swallowed it? How are you able to judge it just having spit, if that makes sense? It absolutely makes sense. And I did a lot of spitting last week when I was on my trip and <laughs> uh, I was in uh, the South in Languedoc, Roussillon. And I was with a friend, she is a wine importer distributor and was looking to add something to her portfolio. So we were there tasting different wines from different winemakers. In a given afternoon, and I'm saying afternoon, so like before lunch, so we would start at like 10 and it would go to like one. And we might've met with three or four winemakers. We may have had 10 to 12 wines. You cannot, it's not physically possible to drink all of those. <laughs> I mean, maybe if I was a big guy, you know, with a little weight to me and I had a full breakfast, perhaps. I'm a fairly petite woman. And so it's simply not possible for me to ingest all of that. So you spit, you swirl around in your mouth. There are some techniques. This is what you do. I'm like, let me backtrack. This is what you do. When you taste wine, you do the swirl, you do the sniff, and you swirl it because you are letting oxygen come in contact with the wine. The more oxygen that comes in contact with the surface area of the wine, the more the aromas are released. And so next time you get a glass of wine, pour it, smell it right away, then swirl it and smell it. You'll notice a difference. If you don't, then just send me a tweet. We'll talk about it. You probably did it wrong. <laughs> we'll talk about it. So, so oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. You know, go ahead. Please, please, please. So then you take it into your mouth. You take a little sip. 
you hold it in your mouth for a little while and you figure out what parts of your tongue you feel the wine on. Like, do you feel it on the sides? That's acidity. If you feel it in the back, that's bitterness. If you feel it on the tip of your tongue, that's sweet. So you can gauge the flavor from there. Then you do like a, you open your mouth a little and do like an inverted whistle with the wine. That's getting more air in your mouth. Same reason you needed the air in the glass when you swirled it. So then you get the taste that way. You swirl it around in your mouth a little more, think about the flavors, which you get, and then you spit it out. And you do you have all. you have a designated spitting cup for this? You do, yes. Most places will <laughs> yeah. have what's called a crachois or a spittoon. Sometimes they will just hand you a red solo cup and then you spit in that. Uh, but yeah, you have your own designated place to dispose of that wine. And then you're off to taste the next one. Now, of course, spitting, and you know this, everyone in their life has spit at some point. You rarely spit all of it out. And even still with spitting, some is still absorbed on your tongue because it was in your mouth. So after a while, no, you're not necessarily drunk, but you do feel a little, you feel some effects. Like for me, it makes me tired. And so I want to go to sleep immediately. (laughs) That is my feeling. But- you drink a little water, have a couple of crackers, maybe some bread, and that, you know, kind of peps you back up. Yeah, I was going to say, so to, I guess, clean your palate and approach each wine with a fresh palate, are you, you're having a sip of water at least in between each ta- each sip? Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely a sip of water. I won't always eat bread between it. Usually if mm. I'm doing bread, that's if I'm changing from white to red or red to sweet. Oh, interesting. But, okay. But between each uh, taste, I will do water. Okay. So you're, this actually makes me think when I'm at a, let's say somebody's at a restaurant and they order a wine and as is customary, a little bit of the wine will first be poured into their glass so they can have a taste. I always find this really amusing because I don't know much about wine and my friends don't either. So mm-hmm. we're always just like, yeah, tastes great. But <laughs> there's a reason why you know, they give you that taste. It's so the consumer can determine whether they believe it's gone bad or not. And how do you, have you ever been in a situation where you were poured a glass of wine and you, you felt it, it should be sent back? And if so, how do you come to that decision? There are certain flavors of a wine if it has gone bad. And uh, those flavors are like, if it tastes like cardboard, if it tastes or smell like uh, burnt rubber, or band-aids if it smells like rotten eggs which i mean sometimes they say natural wine smells like that but if you smell rotten eggs like you probably wouldn't want to drink it anyway whether you think it's bad or not you and your mind are like no this isn't quite for me so there are certain smells and flavors that you look for that are off and when that happens you just mention it to the person say i think this wine is a bit off would you like to taste it um and then say you would like another bottle. Perfectly fine. I've done that with a bottle before. I've done that with glasses. Sometimes by the glass, you know, they have had the bottle open for four, five days. The wine has definitely changed flavors, sometimes not in a good way. And um, I've sent glasses back and said, can you, and sent the glass back and ask if they open another bottle. Could you open a fresh bottle to give me a glass or I will order something else. Got it. Got it. Interesting. So going back to that point you said about how you'll you'll use bread to 
transition between white and red, it got me curious about food and wine pairings. What are some of your favorite food and wine pairings? This one I say all the time. So everyone now knows this about me, but I'm going to say it again because I need to scream this from the rooftops because people do not know about this enough. Champagne and fried chicken. It is, yes, I know. I, I probably just blew your mind. But champagne and fried chicken are so amazing together. Uh, the fat and the saltiness of the fried chicken with the acidity and the bubbles of champagne, I'm telling you, like, I don't know what you're doing the rest of the week or with your weekend, but you need to try this one. Also, I think it's just with fried things because of, I guess, the oil and the fat and everything like that. Try it with uh, French fries as well. Champagne and French fries. There's actually a restaurant here in Paris that does, uh, they do a little pairing. They have champagne and French fries. You get a basket of fries and a glass of champagne. It's 10 euro. I'm like, this is like the best thing ever. So I go and get that. I'm like, this is how you start the party. We're going to have this and we're going to go on and do what we need to do for our night. So that's one of my favorite pairings. Another one that's kind of underrated is uh, Salmon and Pinot Noir. People think mm-hmm. that since it's fish, they should be drinking white wine. But no, 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 you don't necessarily have to. If you don't know much about the flavors and things like that, that is a nice safe way to be. The salmon and Pinot Noir are great together. Just do a little sear on the salmon and get your Oregon or your Pinot Noir from Burgundy. You're going to have a great dinner. I love that. And it speaks to common misconceptions people have about wine. And now that you, you're teaching students and you're talking to lay people like myself, what are some, aside from, you know, like we think champagne, a lot of people who just have a basic understanding of champagne will associate it with a big event, but it doesn't necessarily need to be reserved for a graduation or a wedding. You can, like you said, enjoy it with some fried chicken or fries. I'm so, so glad you said that because yeah. that is what people think about champagne. They're like, oh, someone's getting married. Someone just graduated. Someone just got divorced. I mean, you think of champagne for these things. And I'm like, oh, it's Tuesday. Drink champagne. Oh, I made it to the end of the week. Champagne. Like I just got my cast off. Champagne. Like you can have champagne for, and it is a delicious beverage. So you can have with anything. Also, it doesn't always just have to be champagne. If you are looking, look into other sparkling wines as well. Yes, champagne is very specific, so they can sell that at a higher price point because it has to be from the Champagne region of France. But a cava from Spain, a Prosecco from Italy, you did a Cremont from other regions of France. Those are all amazing sparkling wines that you can drink on any given day as well. Yeah, that's something that didn't occur to me until very recently is, yeah, champagne is awesome, right? Because it's, it's, it's the OG, it's, it's, the, it's the region, but exactly. you, can find, you can find alternatives. It does make me think, though, you know, there, there are, when you think of wine, even as somebody who's only just now starting to learn a little bit about it, it seems like French wine is kind of the top pedigree. So is that, is that kind of what attracted you to French wine or were there other factors that that made you hone in on that specific country when it came to wine? French wine actually came to me. I started working when I first (laughs) got into wine. I started working with a guy in wine marketing, and that's kind of how I really got my basis and my start in wine. And the clients that he had were French wine clients. 
we started working with a sparkling wine region um, in a wine called Blanquette de Lemieux, which is in the south of France. And Bordeaux was one of his clients. And so both of those were French wines. And me being me, I wanted to learn more about those. So Google took classes, things like that. And his clients kept being in the French wine region. And so that's how I came to get into French wine as much as I did. I later took classes for Spain and Italy and things like that, but just kept going back to France because opportunities kept coming from France. So I said, why fight it? Lean in. And here we are. I leaned. (laughs) And what would you say distinguishes French wine? And are you able at your level, if you were handed, if you were doing a blind test, could you definitively say this is a French wine? Yikes. Um, (laughs) I don't know. And the reason I say that now is because I don't get to drink much other wine now. That is Mm -hmm. one thing about France. You really have to search for wines from other regions. Mm -hmm. So if I want something from Spain or Portugal or Germany, I have to go and seek it out, like go to a special store or order it online. I can't just go to my grocery store, my local wine shop. I remember I was doing a tasting uh, with some friends and they were like, oh, well, get the Savion Blanc. Don't get a French one because we know you know about that. Get one from New Zealand. (laughs) I couldn't find one. I went to a few places. I'm like, okay, I'm looking for a Savion Blanc from New Zealand. And the wine shop was like, why? I was like, because I want a Savion Blanc. They said, like, why? Because we have Sancerre and Touraine and we have all of these. And I'm like, so no New Zealand? You're saying not New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, did not have any New Zealand wine. So yeah, back to your original question. Sorry, went off on a tangent there. Um, I, I'm not sure if I could pick now, if I would be able to say definitively, this is French and this is not. Ah, interesting. So, yeah. so you've gotten you've gotten accustomed to French wine, which is a great thing to become accustomed to. <laughs> yes, I'm uh, very accustomed, and also the pricing here in France. When I've gone back home to visit, and friends are like, "Oh, go to the wine shop, Tanisha, pick us out a good wine." I can't pick out the French wines because I love them, and I'm like, "Oh, I know this producer. This is great." Then I look at the price, and I say, "Oh, I can't pay this." I'm like, this wine is 12 euro uh, back in France, but here it's 27, $27. I can't do it. So I have to, I'll go to South America or Portugal or something like that. Yeah, that's interesting too to think about is depending on where you are in the world, a certain wine might be way more affordable. So like you're saying, when you're in France, your local wines are going to be way cheaper than something that had to be uh, shipped across the world. Yes. And America with the three-tier distribution system, they make it a little more difficult to get a lot of things now. So Mm. there's that. I also want to, yeah, I also want to ask you about your, you judge wines as well. And I wonder... That sounds very cool and also like a very serious job. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I'm wondering when you're judging a wine, what's going through your head? And like any any situation where you're judging something, do you come across a wine that might not be your favorite, but you can recognize it's a good wine? Yes. And that's exactly what you're judging for. You're judging because when you judge, they give you the year and you know the region. I'm trying to remember if they give, no, man, you don't even have the grapes. They give you the region of it and then the year and white or red, which you would know because they poured in your glass. And uh, 
you judge based on is this typical of this region. So you have to have a certain knowledge of wine in order to know if something is typical. Like I know what a Bordeaux should taste like. Yes, people do different things and try different blends and things like that, but Bordeaux still has a certain characteristic and flavor profile, and that's what I'm looking for. Now, if it ventures too far off from that, then it's the winemaker was trying to do something fancy and it probably didn't work out, or the wine is flawed, and then I'm judging for that. Hmm. And... What, what is the typical criteria to be a judge? Uh, they ask, what is your position in the industry? How long have you been in the industry? What wine styles or regions are you particularly familiar with or have previous experience with? I think that was all. Hmm. And it, it should be said, you have incredible certifications as well. Not only are you a French wine scholar, you also, let me make sure I get this right, you're a level three advanced certification from the Wine and Spirits Education Trust and a certified specialist of wine and a certified specialist of spirits from the Society of Wine Educators. For somebody like me who doesn't, who's not as familiar with those organizations, can you talk a little bit about what you got from those certifications and kind of the distinctions between them, the nuances where they, where they differ. Sure. The French wine scholar, that French wine. It, so everything about French wine, uh, they give you a man. If you say you want to take the exam, it's through the wine scholar guild. And now they have even specific exams for each of the regions. So you could become an Alsace, a Burgundy, a Bordeaux, a Champagne, a Provence, specialist so you can get those certifications haven't gone that route yet maybe later but you get a manual you go through that study it they now have an online component and you have discussion groups i took mine i did mine in person and took some classes with that and was able to taste different wine i like doing the physical in-person classes because you also get to taste the wines as well as opposed to me doing it at home and trying to buy all these different wines and having to drink all of this by myself. So I like the in-person part of that. The exam is 100 questions. You need at least an 80% in order to pass. So there is the French wine scholar. Society, with the Society of Wine Educators, both of those certifications, they have manuals as well, and then you take a written test. Some multiple choice, some short answer. WSET level three, that one is intense. That one is about 13 weeks. It's a 13 week in-person course that I did. Definitely taste a lot of wines through that. And that is more all of the wine regions. So we're talking South Africa, New Zealand, all the regions in America, all of France, Italy, Spain, like literally everything. And short answer, blind tasting, true, false, multiple choice. And uh, level three is the highest I've done for that. I would like to go back and um, do a diploma. Diploma is the next level. That's a couple of years because that's almost like a master's degree where you have to take different units and different parts. And some are written exams, some are writing like a thesis, and some are you have to give a presentation on certain wine topics, but that's later. But yeah, so that was level three WSET. I did Society Wine Educators and then the French Wine Scholar. 
Did I get them all? Yeah. I think you got them all. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess what, what motivated you to really formally study wine from these from these organizations or just in general what really motivated you i'm gonna i'm gonna dive into this with everything and, and really soak up everything there is to learn and it's funny you say dive in and soak up everything because i didn't think i was doing that because all of this was in addition to i was working in a whole different industry uh, mm. before this i was in it and that was my past life past career and so i was doing this along with that and some of these I did, one of them I did while I was also in graduate school. Mm -hmm. And then um, I did the rest of them after I got out. And this was just something fun for me that I was doing kind of as a hobby. I didn't think of it as a career. But as time went on and I found out I was kind of good at it and I really liked learning about it, became really fascinated in how all of these things went together when talking the soil and the climate how wines from France taste as opposed to wines from Spain, why grapes grow one way here and another way somewhere else. Why, if you have a Chardonnay from California and a Chardonnay from Chile, why they taste different. It is the same grape. Why does it taste different? I needed to know all of that. So I just kept taking classes, kept taking classes. And yeah, every time someone would ask me a question, I'm like, I could Google this or I could take a class. So yeah. I would just end up in another class. So. <laughs> that one of the questions you just posed makes me curious, though. What is there? A, is there kind of a short answer to why a grape from one region might taste different from a grape planted in a different region? The short answer is the soil and the uh, climate. If something grows in sand versus in limestone versus clay, all of those things will be the grape will taste different because you're talking how this type of soil, and by soil, I mean rocks. If you look in a vineyard, it's mostly rocks. And then there's like dirt underneath that. But the way soil and these rocks retain water, the way they radiate heat, also the slope of land, so how much sunlight it gets during the day, all of those are factors that help in the ripening of the grape. And so that's why they would taste different. So is it possible that one type of grape, I'm just going to throw out random grapes without any, any knowledge to back it up. So let's say just for the sake of argument, is it possible that like a California Chardonnay, let's, yeah. Is it possible that a Chardonnay from California might taste actually more similar to a different kind of grape from a different region than um, a Chardonnay, a different Chardonnay? Does that make sense? Yes, it makes sense. And that is yeah. possible. That is possible. Uh, it just, it depends because mm -hmm. while grapes grow a certain way and you can kind of manipulate that based on pruning and things like that, once you uh, remove the grapes, once you harvest the grapes and then go into fermentation, how you ferment them is different. You may ferment them in a stainless steel tank. You may ferment them in an oak barrel. How long you leave the grapes in the oak barrel versus the tank that will change the flavor as well. So you have one part of just the science and the nature of it all. Then you have the other part, which is the winemaker intervention. Mm, very interesting. I have two more questions before we go into rapid fire. Firstly, no how do you prepare for 
when you were leading tastings and now doing them virtually, how do you, how do you, what kind of prep do you do before you're, you're talking with your clients? Okay. I ask them, we usually have already discussed what they want to learn, what they want to know. And we've come up with the theme, whether it's a tour de France where I do just different wines around France, or maybe they want all the rosé, something like that. We'll talk about that in advance so they have that list. I will prepare like a couple of stories based on the producers that I may have used, um, a couple of historical anecdotes about that particular wine or that particular grape. Um, I make sure I have specific maps ready so I can you know, share my screen and show those maps because sometimes that makes a difference of seeing a, a vineyard or grapes that are grown on the coast versus grapes that are grown in the middle of the country with no bodies of water around them. Um, of course, I come up with a couple of jokes because that's just how I am. We got to keep things light. And yeah, then prepare my wine. Make sure I have the wine ready for myself so I can be drinking with them as well. Not as much as them, though. I'll just have one right. wine. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's one of the most beautiful things about wine is the fact that it there's a story behind each wine. And it for me personally, it, it makes me feel like I can transport to a different region of the world, which is especially comforting now when that's not really as feasible due to the travel situation. It's comforting to think like, oh, I'm by proxy experiencing Portugal, for example, through this wine or France or whatever wine you're having. And I think there's something really special in that. And it's awesome that you celebrate that so well in, in the prep you're doing and how you share it with your clients. Because that's the part that really gets people interested in it. I mean, just to sit there and look at me swirl a glass and say, yes, I'm getting dark berry fruit and hints of violet <laughs> with a bit of cigar box and tobacco. Oh, like that's not exciting to them. But right. if I can tell them how this is the seventh generation um, of winemakers in this particular family and how in the beginning, you know, their ancestors fought in one of the wars and had to take the land back from the Germans. Like if I can give them that story, mm -hmm. that makes it, that's something that is interesting to people and that, that kind of endears them a little more toward this particular wine or that particular region. Right. And lastly, I got to ask, what's your go-to day drinking wine? Uh, today? <laughs> <laughs> right now, I'll probably say since it's a little warm out, uh, you know, we're in that season, we're in summer, I'm going to say rosé. Yeah. Rosé. And, um, and I can't even say a specific one because I literally have rosés from all over France currently in my apartment, like different shades and colors and from different regions. You're equal opportunity when it comes to rosé. Yeah, I am. I am. <laughs> I have my preferences, but I'm equal. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we'll wind down with some fun rapid fire questions. Firstly, what's an app that you can't live without? Uh, probably WhatsApp. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I can live without that one. Yeah. Who would you like to play you in a movie about your life? Um, I'm going to say Sanaa Lathan. Oh, cool. Yeah, I'm going to say her. She was just in uh, the show The Affair, and I uh -huh. loved her in that, and then in Love and Basketball. And she's just always very classy, but then still fun and down to earth. And like that reminds me of me. <laughs> Amazing. 
And if you could wake up tomorrow having gained one skill or ability, what would it be? And this one is, <laughs> it should probably be something like, oh, be invisible or fly or something like that. <laughs> but really native level fluency in French is literally mm. the skill that I want now. Like not, you know, being able to argue if I need to call the cable company, <laughs> cuts me off in traffic. Like I need that part. <laughs> I need that part. It's funny because I have the same reference point for what it is, what it means to be considered fluent in a language is if you feel confident enough complaining in that yes, language. Yes. And the French are <laughs> I, known complainers. Yeah. I need to, I need that part. How you've been in France for how long now living there? Five and a half years. Oh, wow. And you, you picked up French when you got there and you, or you had a little, you had some French knowledge before. I mean, I knew like the days of the week and the numbers before I got yeah. Then I picked up everything else here, which has wow. been a little difficult because my work is in English. And so I'm mm -hmm. not always speaking French. I'm speaking English 90% of the time. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, kudos to you for, for picking up a new language on the fly. That's a very admirable skill. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Especially French. Uh, and, they, and and French people will point out, in my experience, when you are doing something right or not right. So <laughs> props for, for taking oh, they it surely, They surely let you know. They're <laughs> like, no, no, that's, mm -mm, no. You meant to say it this way. I'm like, fine, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my, my quick little tangent is I, I went to a French restaurant out here in Los Angeles and I had a reservation I had made on Open Table. And when I got there, I said, hi, uh, Ben Hanani for 10 a.m., and they said, we don't, we don't have your reservation. And I said, no, no, no. Like I made it on open table and they're like, oh, Benjamin Hanani. Yes. Yes. Come this right this way. And I was like, this is incredible. Like you just told me how to pronounce my name. I love that. <laughs> and where's a place you haven't been to yet that you hope to visit? South Africa. Mm, yeah. For the history, for the wine. And for the barbecue, everyone has told me about these barbecues they do, and I need to be a part of that. That sounds delicious. And lastly, what's your jam? As in a song you like to jam to? Um, you know, if you play probably anything by Missy Elliott, like I'm in for it. But work it. That I mean, that's gonna get me off my. <laughs> that's gonna get me up and on my feet every time. Well, we have a playlist. We have a Spotify playlist that we curate with each of our guest recommendations. So that one will be added to the playlist. Oh, snap. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And where can people find you on social media or online? I can be found on uh, most forms of social media at Girl Meets Glass. Awesome. And if anybody wants to check out the pod, you can do that on Instagram at HDYDPod. Tanisha, thank you so much. This was a real treat, and I appreciate you patiently answering all my questions about wine, even the ones that were super basic for someone of your knowledge and expertise. It means a lot. No, this was so much fun, Ben. Thank you so much for having me. If you ever have any other questions, I mean, you know, send me a tweet, Instagram, <laughs> email, I will, whatever. Yeah. I, will take, I will take you up on that for sure. No thank problem. Thank you so much. Thank you. 